Well, before we open God's word together, let's just let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege of gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Some of us may be here with heavy burden. We pray that you will encourage us, instruct us, and enable us this morning to live for you. We ask for your great work. Give us ears to hear and apply your word to our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're new to Faith Bible Church, I'm Pastor Steve. It's a privilege to be here with you today and just open up God's Word. And we are in a nine-week series looking at navigating life. How do I know God's will for my life? We started out with two bedrock principles foundational principles. Principle number one is simply this, that the decisions that we make need to fit within the boundaries of God's revealed will. In other words, we we need to live between the fences of God's commands and principles that we find in the New Testament. So principle number one is that the decisions that we make need to fall within the boundaries of God's revealed will. Principle number two is this. It's God's will that every Christian be filled with the Holy Spirit, and walk by the Holy Spirit. Meaning that every Christian, and we know from Romans chapter 8, verse 9, and Ephesians chapter 1, that every Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling within. It's God's will that that indwelling Spirit be allowed to control us. Each and every one of us are commanded to be controlled by the Spirit of God. So if a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian, is living life within the fences of God's revealed will, and if under the empowerment of God himself, the grace that he gives us, we're walking by means of the Spirit of God, we're being controlled by the Spirit of God, We do not have to worry about missing God's will in the decisions we make. If we're living our lives within God's boundaries and we're walking by means of the Spirit of God, we will not be missing God's will. But there's still a question. How do I make decisions? We all face multitudes of decisions in our lives. How do I actually make decisions in my life? Well, we're going to take today and the next six weeks trying to drill a little bit deeper into God's Word in answering that practical question. We've laid down the foundation 
those two major foundational principles. If I want to be in the center of God's will, I need to make decisions that fall within the boundaries of his revealed will, as I find it in the New Testament, either by command or principle. And secondly, I need to be living my life under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. And if I fail, if my life starts resembling the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5, instead of being filled with the Spirit, I confess my sin, and then I keep moving forward, depending on the Spirit of God to fill me and control me. Now, how do I make decisions? Well, today... As we look at that question today and the six weeks following, we're going to begin by talking about decision-making in marriage. I know not everyone here this morning is married, but we're going to take one of these next six weeks, seven weeks, in talking about decision-making within marriage. And to do that, I want us to go back to God's design for marriage in Genesis chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles with me this morning, let's go back to Genesis chapter 2 as we look at this whole blueprint for marriage that we find in God's Word. God is the one who designed marriage for two separate people to come together and form one indissoluble unit in oneness. Barbara and I have some dear, dear friends. We've known them for 30 years plus. Godly people, very active in serving Jesus Christ. But when they said I do, they came from very different backgrounds. She is a city girl, grew up in California went to a private college, Westmont College. He grew up in rural North Dakota in a town under 400. Farmer kid. Well, this Norwegian farmer kid from North Dakota married this big city girl from California. I'm guessing they viewed life through different lenses. And all of a sudden, two separate entities are now one. And I don't know about what it was like for you if you're married, but when we got married, there's tons of decisions that have to be made. How do we navigate this as husband and wife? How do we figure out what we should do? Well, God helps us. That's why God's word is so practical for us, because we can find answers, even in things like, how do I make decisions? And that answer comes in God's design for marriage. So as we come to Genesis 2, we're going to be reminded that God has designed marriage for oneness. Two separate entities... Coming together as one indissoluble unit. And we're going to see that God's design for marriage calls for couples to make decisions out of oneness and decisions that promote oneness. 
Now, before I read Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 25, just be reminded of this, the verses around that here in Genesis 2. When we come to Genesis 2, we find Adam in the Garden of Eden, naming animals. Remember with me back in Genesis 2 and verse 7, it says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That breath of God, that in-breathing of God that gave Adam life is the in-breathing that created Adam in God's image, that man was created to be in fellowship with God, to have a relationship with God, to serve God. And we're told that God put Adam in the garden in verse 15 to cultivate it and keep it. And we've looked and when we studied the book of Genesis, those are very special words. They're actually words that are used in worship contexts. And we're not totally sure what Adam's responsibilities were in his work in the garden, but we know that his work was an act of worship, of serving God. And Adam is charged with naming animals. Two by two. Animals. Adam has to name them. And you know how in the Genesis account it tells us that God created on the first day and the second day and the third day and it was good and it was good and it was good and it was good. But when we come down to verse 18, it says then the Lord God said, it's not good. It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call the kingdom. Whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept and he took one of the ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned to a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, as Adam was looking at these animals and saw, hey, they had mates, I don't have anyone. And God said, that's not a good situation. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, when we read that line, in our culture today, that sounds very counter-culture. If I would ask a young bride, hey, are you looking forward to getting married and and, and and she's maybe with her friends and her friends say, hey, are you looking forward to your wedding day? She says, yes, I'm so excited because I'm going to get to be his helper. That wouldn't go over so good, would it? But it's because 
we invest that term with our cultural understanding. Literally, that is a very positive term. In fact, God calls himself a helper five times in the Old Testament. He says he is Israel's helper. This is not a derogatory term. It's God telling Israel, what you're lacking, I'm coming alongside of you to bring completion. Here, woman is to help bring completion to man. To undergird, to fulfill where he's lacking. And Adam looks at the wife that God has provided for him. And in verse 23, in the New American Standard, it sounds very wooden. It says, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she has was taken out of man. Really, the sense of that verse is almost like, baby, where have you been all my life? I mean, he's excited. This is God's provision of a wife for me. And it's really important for... Husbands and wives today to understand that as they enter into marriage, this is God's provision of a spouse for me. So because it's God's design, it's marriage is God's design, that that the wife is God's design for a husband. We come down to verse 24 and it says for this reason because this is God's design a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh they're no longer to be two separate people they are now one there's no room in God's design for marriage For two separate people to be living underneath one roof. That's not God's design. Two unique people, sometimes from vastly different backgrounds, come together in oneness. One indissoluble unit. Now with that in mind, I want us to briefly turn back to a passage we looked at last week in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Romans chapter 8, verse 9. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, we are reminded that every Christian, every person who's come to a point in their life where they have recognized that sin separates us from God and that they can't fix that, And have put their trust in the person of Jesus Christ. Believing that Jesus is God. That he died on the cross as payment for sin. And rose again from the dead. Every person who's trusting in the person of Jesus Christ. Has the spirit of God living within them. And Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says this. However, you are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a Christian. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit. As husband and wife come together. And this is the point where we're driving When as husband and wife come together, and both are Christians, both 
have the Spirit of God dwelling within. The husband does not have a greater ability for for processing decisions than the wife does. The husband does not have a greater uh, intellectual depth than the wife does. Both have the Spirit of God dwelling within. And they've been brought together by God's design as one indissoluble unit. Now that is important for us in asking the question and answering the question, how do husbands and wives make decisions? Here's a principle. If a decision does not need to be made, don't move forward without unity. I'll say it again. If a decision does not need to be made, don't move forward without unity. Remember, husband and wife are one indissoluble unit. They're no longer two separate people. And both husband and wife have the indwelling spirit of God. So decisions need to be made out of oneness, but decisions also need to promote oneness. If a husband and wife are faced with a decision that does not have to be made, don't move forward without unity. Husband comes home, all excited, steps into the house, Guess what I just saw? I just drove past the car dealership and the 2018 vans are out. And they're so nice. You know how in our van, we've, whenever we go on a trip, I have to go out and manually take a seat out and go put it in the bedroom. These seats disappear into the floor. And it's got cameras to show us when we back up. And it's got... Monitors that come down so the kids can watch television and it has a pizza oven. I mean, this thing is just great. I think we should buy it. And then he's kind of deflated because his wife immediately says, well, our van only has 60,000 miles on it and it's paid for. And I'm just not comfortable with that right now. And so they say, well, can we talk about it? Yes, let's talk about it. And they pray about it as husband and wife. And they sit down with their family budget. And they pray about it and talk about it and pray about it and talk about it. And about a week has gone by. And the husband says, yes, let's go for it. And the wife is saying, I just don't feel good about this. That decision does not have to be made, right? I mean, they still have a van that runs, and it runs good. It's only got 60,000 miles on it. If a husband and wife are faced with a decision that does not have to be made, they should not move forward unless they are unified in that decision. Why? Because husbands and wives are designed by God to be in Oneness. And both the husband and the wife has the indwelling spirit of God if they are 
putting their trust in Jesus Christ. I've got a buddy who loves to go grouse hunting. I've never gone grouse hunting in my life, but he goes up to the big woods of Wisconsin with his dog, and the timber is so thick, oftentimes he hears a grouse and he doesn't even see it. So he keeps a clicker in his pocket, and every time his dog flushes a grouse, he gives it a click. He thinks, I had a successful day. We flushed ten grouse. I never saw one of them, but I heard ten of them. That's not my idea of hunting, but he keeps count with a clicker. The problem is, sometimes husbands and wives have clickers. Oh, they may not have a physical clicker they keep in their pocket, but they've got a clicker. Listen, buddy, last decision that was made in this house, you got your way, click. In fact, I'm almost positive that the last two decisions that were made in this house, you got your way. That's two clicks for you. Click, click. I need a click over here. And so we kind of get into this deal about, hey, we got to keep things even. If you got two clicks, I'm getting this click and I'm going to die on this mountain until I do. Now that's not God's design. That's our culture's design. Everybody look out for themselves. It's not God's design. God's design is that husband and wife come together in oneness. And decisions need to be made out of oneness and that promote oneness. And both husband and wife have the indwelling Holy Spirit within. If we're faced with a decision as a husband and wife, and that decision does not need to be made, the husband and wife should not move forward in that decision unless they have unity. Now, The next question is, well, what if a decision does have to be made? Let's turn to Ephesians 5. When we come to Ephesians 5, we looked at this really important passage for living the Christian life last week. And we noted in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, that we are commanded, every Christian is commanded to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. We know from Romans chapter 8 verse 9 and Ephesians chapter 1 that every Christian has the indwelling spirit. But oftentimes we can, we have the Holy Spirit but we don't allow the Holy Spirit to be in control in our life, to be in the driver's seat of our life. Here in Ephesians 5.18 we're commanded, don't get controlled by alcohol, be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And then the Apostle Paul starts giving results of that control. And one of the results of being controlled by the Holy Spirit, also saying, apart from the Spirit's control, we can't adequately do this, is that we are to voluntarily yield our desires, our will, to that of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul gives us specific examples of that. So if you look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, And be subject... To one another in the fear of Christ, out of reverence for Christ, I am going to voluntarily yield my will to my brother or sister in Christ. And then we come down to very specific, specific ways that this should be seen in our lives. And Paul comes to Ephesians 5.22 and says, Wives, 
Be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now notice in verse 22 and in verse 24, this is specifically talking to women to yield themselves to their husband. It's not to all men, it's to your husband. But here, the Apostle Paul is calling a wife to yield herself to her husband's leadership. He puts it in terms of headship. And when she does, she's actually yielding to the person of Jesus Christ. A Christian wife who voluntarily yields her will to the direction and the leadership that her husband provides in the home is ultimately yielding her will to Jesus Christ in obedience. Now, Paul goes on to explain why he's saying that in verse 22, 23. Look at the little word for. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Now here, the apostle Paul is actually taking us to the Godhead itself, to the Trinity, and is charging that husbands, not having more worth than wives, husbands have a role, a God-assigned responsibility and accountability to God to provide godly leadership in the home. One day, when Christian men who have been husbands, stand before Jesus Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, we will give an account for how we have led in our homes. And that's pretty awesome and scary to think about the weight of that responsibility. I can guarantee you that this verse is not talking about worth. And I guarantee that because the Apostle Paul shows it's not about worth in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 verse 3, we see that the concept of headship is not about worth or ability. It's about responsibility. In 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3, we see that the concept of headship comes out of the triune God. Notice with me. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So the Father is in a position of headship over the Son. Does that mean that the Son has less worth than the Father? No way. Does that mean that the Son is less capable than the Father? No way. No, that means that the Son yields to the leadership of the Father. And if we think about Jesus Christ's ministry, Jesus was all about, not my will, but yours be done. So here the Apostle Paul challenges a Christian godly wife That she is to yield to the God-assigned responsibility, accountability, authority that he has chosen to declare upon the husband. 
Now, having said that, we have to quickly also look at verse 25. Because the Apostle Paul continues on and says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. What did Jesus do? He loved the church so much that he died for us. That gruesome death. And what Paul is saying here is that the husband is to so selflessly love his wife that it's that same love that Jesus loved us with when he died for us. Husbands are to selflessly meet the needs of their wives. If a husband is loving his wife the way Jesus Christ loves the church, it's no big deal for the wife to yield her life to the leadership of that husband. You see what the culture today says? Is that wife, whatever you do, make sure you do what makes you happy. And over here, the culture says to the husband, whatever you do, make sure that you're happy. And what happens is the husband starts trying to make himself happy, and the wife starts trying to make herself happy, and they end up going in opposite directions. That's not God's design. God's design is, husband, you selflessly meet the needs of your wife. Wife, you voluntarily yield yourself to the leadership of your husband. And what happens is both people's needs are met and they grow in oneness. So we're asking the question, what happens if I'm facing a decision? If we as a couple are facing a decision and that decision has to be made, but we are at an impasse. We cannot come to an agreement. Here's the principle. If a decision must be made and husband and wife cannot come to consensus, the wife is to lovingly yield to the husband's leadership in that case. Again, if a decision has to be made and the couple cannot come to consensus, at that point, the wife is to voluntarily yield herself to her husband's God-assigned leadership in the home. A couple of weeks ago, I took my brother, who was visiting from Denver, to the Herbert Hoover Museum. Never been. I'm an Iowan, a native Iowan. I've never been. It's almost in our backyard. So we went down. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I think the poor guy's gotten a bad rap in history. He had a tough presidency. And when we came out of the out of the museum, you can walk across the sidewalk and see the little Quaker Fellowship Hall that his parents attended and where he did until age seven, or whatever his age was when he moved. And when you walk into that Quaker assembly, there's a wall, a half wall, right down the middle. There's pews on this side, pews on that side, and a half wall. Men on one side. Women on another with a wall right down the middle. And what happens today in so many marriages 
is that walls are formed between husband and wife and oneness is lost. Even in decision making. And God's design is this. Whatever we do, we need to do it out of a spirit of oneness. If we're facing a decision that does not have to be made, a couple should not move forward in that decision unless there is unity between husband and wife on that decision. But what if we're facing a decision that does have to be made? Wife comes home from the office. Honey, guess what? Interesting change of events. My entire company is leaving town and moving away. And I have to make a decision to either move or quit. Husband has a job that he's not geographically bound. He can work out of his home office. He can jump on any airplane at any airport and go where he needs to go. It's not a big deal where he lives. So they start praying about it and talking about it and dialoguing. And the husband is really feeling like, you know what? I think we should do this. We should go ahead and relocate. Um, we're at a time in our lives when we need your income. We're at a time in our lives when it would not have a dire effect on our family. We should do this. And the wife said, yeah, but my mom lives 10 miles away and kind of don't really want to leave her. So I, I just really not sure I want to do that. I'd rather just quit. And they talk about it and pray about it. It's not like they can just ignore the decision. Either she's out of a job or they move with the company. What do they do? When a husband and wife are facing a decision that has to be made and they cannot come to consensus, then at that point, they're at an impasse. At that point, the wife is to yield to her husband's leadership in the home. Which coupled with that means if they move in three months later, it's not going good. The wife does not give him an elbow and say, I told you we shouldn't have done this. <laughs> Oneness. You see, that is God's design. And in the decision-making process, that needs to be our grid, our lens. Are we making this decision out of a sense of oneness? Will this decision promote oneness in our relationship? Husbands and wives need to be making decisions out of oneness and yieldedness to God's design for marriage. I want to encourage you this morning, if you're here today and you don't know if you're in right relationship with God or not, one of our leaders here at Faith Bible Church will be back at our prayer room directly behind you. Please feel free to stop back and they can give you some material how you can know for sure that you're in right relationship with God. Or maybe you're here and you just want to spend some time praying encourage you to step back to our prayer room. Father, we thank you for your word and the fact that it gives us practical guidelines for daily life. We praise you and thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.